Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. Today, we celebrate our 100th episode of the Second in Command podcast. Our goal is to talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hi, my name is Cameron Harold. Thank you for tuning into the Second in Command podcast sponsored by the COO Alliance. Today, we're pleased to announce that we reached 100 episodes. Since the launch of the Second in Command podcast, we've talked to several COOs and others in the position of Second in Command to learn and educate others on how to increase their results, improve their businesses, and affirm better communication with their CEO. In this episode, we'll be recapping some of the highlights from over the last 100 episodes. I hope you enjoy them, and thanks for being an avid listener and a subscriber. Please share this episode. Harley Finkelstein, the COO of Shopify. And so 2005, I moved from Montreal to Ottawa and uh, started law school. Uh, although I, I really enjoyed my first couple weeks of school uh, when, I got to, when I got here, um, I, I didn't know anyone here. I had no friends. I had no family in Ottawa. Um, I just had this one mentor who was teaching law. And when I began to ask around uh, where all the entrepreneurs hung out, I was, I was pointed into a particular direction. Um, and, and just an aside on that, one of the things that I've done throughout my life, whether it was living in Montreal or then moving to Florida, moving back to Montreal, moving to Ottawa, I always found that entrepreneurs in any city uh, were, were typically where I'd find my tribe, like-minded people who uh, I can develop real, really good relationships with. And so right. moved to Ottawa, asked where the entrepreneurs hung out, and um, I was directed to a coffee shop in the Glebe, which is a small little uh, area, a small, really nice area of Ottawa. And I was told that every Friday night, a group of really smart entrepreneurs hung out there. And so without you know, giving it any, any, any more thought, I showed up on one Friday night to that coffee shop and I met five or six entrepreneurs. And it was, uh, it was some people that, that, that you know and, and some of your listeners may know. It was uh, Sam Zaid, who at the time was just building Get Around. He's, he's recently obviously moved to San Francisco to build Get Around Out. It was Paul Lem who built Spartan Bioscience. It was Luke Levesque who built TravelPod, who's now uh, uh, a senior leader at Facebook. Wow. And it, and it, was, uh, and it was Toby. And the interesting part about Toby was it's clearly, I mean, you know, both of us, we are, we are polar opposites. Um, he's cerebral. He's, you know, somewhat introverted. I am, I, I speak too much and I'm, I'm far more extroverted than he is, but him and Toby and I really connected, uh, at these sort of weekly coffee meetups. And Toby at that point was just transitioning out of selling snowboards online to the software company. Um, as you probably know, he built, uh, he, he wrote this piece of software to sell these snowboards uh, because he couldn't find any great software on the market and very quickly realized that selling snowboards may be a good idea, but, but selling the software behind the snowboard shop may be a great idea in that he can help entrepreneurs from all over the world build their own businesses. And wow. when I met him and he just transitioned away from snowboards into software, I was looking for a way to continue selling t-shirts, but in, in, while concurrently going to class. In undergrad, I was able to skip class and just show up for the exams. But in law school, using the Socratic method, which is basically them yelling out your name randomly and you have an answer to the question, it didn't work nearly as well. And so I needed a, a business that would run virtually. And I ended up becoming one of Shopify's first customers. I built a t-shirt, an online t-shirt shop called Smoofer uh, with my best buddy in law school. And you know, uh, ran it concurrently with class and, and, and my and my my course curriculum uh, all throughout uh, all throughout law school and then throughout business school I did my MBA. 
after, uh, so that was about 2008 at that point. Uh, in 2008, uh, I decided that I wanted to get called to the bar. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, to be honest with you, law school for me was was actually finishing school as an entrepreneur. It was it was like etiquette school to be an entrepreneur, okay. yes. which which was really exciting to me. It really had very little to do with the law itself. It had to do with a way of thinking, a way of arguing, a way of negotiating. It taught me how to read four thousand pages and pick out the one line that mattered most. Um, it taught me some, you know, taught me how to be a bit more articulate in how I express myself. And so I, I loved law school, and, and but I knew I didn't want to practice, um, but I did want to get called to the bar because I, I felt that was kind of the last step in the process. And so uh, in 2008, 2009, I moved out to Toronto and I worked for uh, a pretty large law firm uh, and I articled for 10 months and I absolutely hated it. It was, it was the worst 10 months of my life, unlike entrepreneurship, which I felt was all about um, it was really a meritocracy. Uh, I felt that the legal profession, not too dissimilar from things like the accounting profession, a lot of it was about legacy. It mattered how long you've been there. It mattered who you knew. Sure. Um, and I just, I, it just didn't feel right to me. And so uh, I think I stayed 10 months in one day longer, which was exactly the amount of time I needed to get called to the, the Ontario bar. And, and then I called Toby and I said, I, I, I love Shopify. I love the product. At that point, it was really, it was Toby and Daniel and Cody who were really the three uh, kind of co-founders of, of the company. And they were all brilliant engineers and designers. And, and uh, I had known them you know, for a couple of years because I was an early merchant and an early customer of Shopify's. And these were three of the smartest people I'd ever, I'd ever met. And what was really cool was that they had a really great product. Uh, they were beginning to find product market fit but none of them really self-identified uh, necessarily as someone who was who was focused on the business side of, of a company. Uh, mm-hmm. They were really on the technical and the product side. And so mm-hmm. I called Toby in 2009 and said, um, I'd like to move to Ottawa and help you, Cody and Daniel, build out Shopify. And I'd like to sort of, you know, take on the business responsibilities for the company. And that was it. And, and, and I, you know, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife and, and the mother of my child. Uh, we, we moved to Ottawa uh, in early 2010. And I think my, my initial job, I remember asking Toby, I said, so what do you need me to do? And he, and he basically said, whatever, uh, whatever you can. And <laughs> I remember sort of thinking that um, my job was, was finding the things that they either didn't want to do or didn't know how to do. And, and also making sure that this amazing product that they had built, which I felt was by far the best product on the market, uh, that we were able to properly commercialize it, sell it, market it, um, retain customers, really build a business. And I would say my first year or two at Shopify was, was mostly just being a Swiss army knife. We raised our first round of financing in uh, mid-2010, and we had no CFO, we had no GC. And so I helped raise the round. I, I figured out what, what a cap table needed to look like. And, and, mm-hmm. and along with Toby, we went ahead and raised $7 million, um, and that was led by Bessemer. But that really was sort of my, my first introduction to being in a sort of chief operating officer role or a second-in-command role, which was that my job isn't necessarily one, you know, this one thing and do only that one thing. It was basically figure out what are the gaps of the company that were going to prevent us from getting to the next step or the next level that the, the others, the other three were not, were not tackling. And really the first couple of years, it was mostly around building a business around Shopify, building a partnerships team, building a business development team, figuring out what sales should look like. We didn't have a CMO at that time. So we're very closely trying to build out a, a marketing team. But really, that was that was that was the first couple of years here. It was really just about being a Swiss Army knife and, and helping, really, Toby, uh, however I could. 
Mae Stigler, the COO and past CEO Alliance member from Organifi. Those were the pretty early days for Facebook as well. I mean, Facebook, I guess, had been around in the college market, but really kind of came into the business world around 2010. So, yeah. or e- even even a little little bit later than that, maybe. But so, how did you guys attract all those early eyeballs, and um, and and do you still carry some of those lessons forward today now in, in Organifi's business? Yeah, and it was totally different. You're right, back then. Uh, we had a lot, a lot of free traffic, and it was a whole different um, experience in the business realm on Facebook. And that was what initially grew our company tremendously uh, before the original algorithm changed a lot. Um, so we were uh, experiencing free traffic, we were um, really using key terms, um, and a lot of just basics of content marketing on Facebook. And um, it, it was it was kind of the wild, wild west back then, I guess you could say, but very different. What we've taken forward uh, to answer your question is um, using Facebook as a primary. Um, it's still right now our number one paid channel. So we, we do the most on Facebook and um, in paid ads. And it's just a slightly obviously different um, way of doing things, but it's still a primary fight focus and driver for our business. Um, and we, our huge focus of our customer service is handling the, um, ads comments. So we do engage very highly with our customer base and are always looking to do more of that. Uh, most recently at the CEO Alliance, um, we had a great presentation uh, about, uh, customer voice and customer activation of feedback. And it was just a great reminder to um, look at the value of doing that and how much you can learn from engaging with your customer base. And um, for us, a lot of those ads are essentially community-based, but um, you know they're not customers yet, let's say. But the more we can engage and understand um, the obstacles to purchasing the product and or the actual pain points that we're solving with the product, as we see testimonials in those uh, Facebook ads threads, the more successful we'll be. So we're always trying to get better at that. And of course, I feel like we haven't nailed it, but. <laughs> well, yeah, and some of that is just like, we're stumbling as we go, because so much of this is new, right? And we learn either either through our own experiences or through a little bit of R&D. So um, one of the first early communities I'd seen on Facebook that really did well was Hal Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning. Yeah. Um, and he and I co-authored The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs together. And I just recently interviewed his second in command, Tiffany, on this podcast. So they, they do an unbelievable job with engagement in the community. Do you study other communities online or where did you guys gain in your skill sets to do that? I think it was just practice in, in our own and um, having a membership that was based on a Facebook group. And it's interesting to see, like we, we don't do that anymore. So we don't have our own Facebook group for our customers. We have a Facebook page for our customers. Um, but a lot of uh, the transition that we essentially over the last year, we built on a call center. So we actually have an in-house call center in San Diego, which is very rare and relatively unique. But this allows us to not only hear the conversations of our customers, it's a, a hybrid CS and sales floor. So we're experiencing um, anywhere from 400, well, actually, I guess more like 800 to 1,000 um, inbound customer calls. And, uh, okay. and that's... Yeah. And so that's allowing us to, to really um, keep that conversation alive. So I think we've, we've kind of transformed how we're connecting with our customer base uh, rather than maybe a, a closed Facebook group that's a membership like we used to at FitLife TV. At Organifi, we're really seeing that conversation alive and well over the phones and um, really making that a coaching conversation. So we wanted to add a bit more of a 
tying in that original transformation focus we had with FitLife with more than just a physical product brand at Organifi and ensure that, you know, we're not just another, uh, maybe Vega or something. And obviously they're, they're incredible, but how are we unique from somebody like that? And so really trying to continue the in-house product education, um, transformation education for our own, our own employees is huge. And maybe we can talk about that later, but we do a, um, an incredible in-house leadership program that really focuses our team members on their own health and transformation, giving them um, coaching and, and uh, wellness education that they can really tie into the phone conversations that the CS team is having with uh, customers. Now, so in 2014, Organifi was launched. Was it like mid to late 2014? Was it early 2014? <laughs> it was October. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. 2014. So really you've only had three years, three and a half years. Yeah, three years and some change, three and a half years. So three and a half years to go from basically two employees to 55 plus 110 contractors. How are you funded? <laughs> we're, we're not, so we haven't taken on any funding. Um, we, and, and I, I will correct you a little bit, in 2014, we probably had uh, maybe five or six full-time employees. Oh, I exaggerated. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. It was 2011 that it was just Drew and I. Um, our current CEO, Jamel Bedahar, uh, was brought on in 2014, 2013 perhaps, and really uh, launched Organifi with, with Drew and the company. So he was kind of our first uh, legitimate integrator. Uh, and we've, uh, he's moved into the CEO role as completely um, accelerating the company, doing an incredible job. He has a a uh, incredible mind and um, really stepping into the the visionary role and transitioning out of a integrator role so it's really cool to see that transition um, interesting yeah yeah so, so, so you're you're in the pure integrator role then correct now yeah yeah so i am sitting in the ceo seat jamal is in the ceo seat and drew is in the founder role so he kind of operates as what we call chief innovation officer um, and works with our leadership team to innovate essentially. Yeah. Applying that uh, very strong visionary skill set that he plays expertly to. Yeah, cool. Okay. So you've now got the visionary, the integrator kind of terms have been popularized from EOS traction by Gino Wickman. Great book. Um, and a lot of my clients actually use those systems. So in, in, in the role that you're in, in the COO role, the, the whole reason we even started the COO Alliance was to grow the skill set of the second in command. How do you stay on the same page with the CEO ongoing? What systems do you have in place? What, you know, meeting rhythms? What, what do you guys do so that you and um, the CEO are always on the same page, you know, always moving the company forward? You said he's a great visionary. Yeah. How, do you, how do you get caught up on the vision constantly and how does he get caught up on the plans that are being put in place? Yeah, so appreciate this question. I feel like it's something we're always developing and I love... Um, continuing to update and develop our own meeting rhythm and kind of how we run our operations. And one of the key, uh, we started with traction. So the framework of our company, Gina Wickman's right traction um, book, incredible format for meeting pulse. Uh, we essentially do a daily standup, um, a daily huddle at 9am every day. Uh, the entire um, kind of like um, managers and above. So the manager team and above. Um, and we go through our, primary um, objective for the, the day and so our, our number one thing uh, I don't know if you have read the book the one thing by yep. um, 
Yeah. Great book. So our team read that a couple years back. And so we've always done kind of here's my number one priority. The one thing gets everyone on the same page, has everyone connect. Cause we do have a bit of a remote team as well. So 9am daily huddle, everyone does their one thing that lasts about five minutes tops, maybe even probably less. And then we go over our company dashboards. So we run through all of our uh, metrics. It's all visualized data. So it's a screen share. Uh, and then we typically will do um, quick company announcements. If it's a birthday, we'll sing happy birthday. And it all always sounds horrible because we have remote team members <laughs> on Zoom. And so it's a nightmare and it's hysterical and we love it. And uh, any any uh, frontline announcements, new hires and whatnot on there. And then we close out with a quote. So that's every day. And then weekly I meet with my um, CEO. So Jamal and I meet, we do an hour and I break down the operations side of the business. Uh, he also meets with our um, C CMO, Amy Beaver, who's incredible, um, once a week, and she breaks down the marketing side of the business. So right now we break it up kind of in half, and we run through um, my one-on-ones with uh, my key, basically, direct reports, and uh, I have them fill out a, a weekly one-on-one uh, -on -one assessment, and I I'm, meet with them uh, for an hour a week and we run through the dashboards and get a, uh, an update on what's working, what's not, um, any uh, obstacles, missing systems, you name it. Um, so it is built on the traction format. We have company rocks and a gigantic KPI board in the, in the office that everyone updates once a week and, uh, and basically uh, color code those for, you know, on track, uh, not on track and, and below, below projection. So pretty visual for all of us. I think DJ, Drew, um, and myself are extremely visual people. So we need mm -hmm. that kind of visual indicator of where we are and how we're doing. We have a, a three by three TV wall that has all of our company dashboards on it that we go over on the daily huddle. So that's live all the time. And then our um, call center, which is literally in the kind of the main floor has their TV dashboards for their daily sales and, um, call wait times and whatnot. So we keep those front and center. Otherwise it's really hard to keep that, uh, kind of that transparency on what's moving at the company and certainly feeling over these quick four years, the, the, um, feeling of being less in the business. And that's always, um, it's just a challenge, you know, to keep the transparency and keep the communication alive. So I think it's always something we're working on. Mm. Um, to, to finish answering this question, I apologize for the long answer. Oh, no, this is great. But, um, uh, we also do a, what we call it, we call it like the hedgehog meeting. It's basically a, it's a, <laughs> um, I think that may have been from scaling up or, um, good to great Jim Collins. Yeah, there we go. Jim Collins. Good to great. Uh, so we do a hedgehog meeting, which is a once a week hour long meeting, um, with the C-level team. So we just have a little extra time. Um, we also do the level 10 meeting format, um, once a week from the directors. So we have a, a pretty solid meeting rhythm. Um, definitely subscribe or um, subscribe to your book. The uh, meetings suck and we try not to have that many and just really focus on the most important ones, keeping them as short as possible. But we do run a 90 minute level 10 meeting, which um, gives us a little more time to go over the uh, where we are weekly with each department, um, the 90 day calendar. We run through IDS, which is essentially like uh, issues discussion and solutions and uh, finish up with uh, who does what by when. Matt Quinn, the COO of TIPCO. I, I'd love to, to have you share a little bit on that. I mean, I've, I've coached CEOs and teams now in 28 countries, so I've had some exposure to it, but most people don't see what you've been able to see in terms of really kind of being embedded with these different companies and truly seeing the culture and, and um, 
you know, not just the language difference, like in London, turnover means revenue. And in the US, it means losing employees. What's the what are the differences in terms of leadership and style and, um, you know, the way companies approach business between Australia, London, um, you know, Houston, you know, Texas and, and California? What would what have you seen? Well, I, I tell you, the, the funniest one for me was uh, it is still the language. So there are both professional and personal language choices that you make mm-hmm. in each one of those places that still to this day bring a, bring a, a smile to my lips. One, one is uh, in, in, in the UK and in Australia, to cross something out is to, is, or to, tick, to tick something off is to cross something out. Yeah. And so I still remember being in a, in a, um, in a meeting and say, well, just, just tick that one off. We've finished that, that use case. And the person's like, why are you angry at the piece of paper? And I'm, I'm like, what do, you mean? what do you mean? And the other was in, in every other part of the planet, a sweater is a jumper, especially right. in, in Australia and, uh, and the UK. And I, yep. I was living in Houston. It's freezing cold in the office buildings, even though it's boiling hot outside because of air conditioning. And so I saw, I'm, I'm just going to go find a jumper. And of course, the guy that I was working with who worked for Tipco, still works for Tipco, thought that that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard, that this, you know, this, this, Australian, this young Australian kid was going to put on a jumper. Jumper, yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had one where we had uh, some friends over from Australia and some, they were starting to work with our company with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I um, was walking down. Oh, street. I love those guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, so we, we took that company to Australia 15 years ago. But they, um, our Aussie guy from, from Sydney was in, in the Vancouver and we were walking down a street and we came across a store called Roots and he started laughing. He goes, you're kidding, right? You have a store called Roots. And I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, well, in Australia, that means like to fuck. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the logo on the Roots is a beaver. So he was dying laughing to have like a beaver. Like, you're just like, this is too much. Anyway, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 cultural. All right, so what about what about this? What about the leadership styles? Do they do they manage businesses differently? Do they think differently, or is it pretty much the same? Same? Do you think? It, it is. Um, it is very different in all three places, and I I spent a lot of time in Germany as well with uh, uh, people like Deutsche Bank and and others. Mm. Uh, you know, look. One of the one of the biggest lessons I learned was you can't stereotype a country and their business practices, because while things are different, um, you can't make those types of gross assumptions uh, because ultimately people are all individuals. Um, yeah. And a good example of that is, is Europe. Uh, you know, I, I guess today we're still, we're still no Brexit. So I'm going to count the UK as part of, uh, a part right. of, yeah, of, of the EU. Um, you know, I look at my time in all of those countries and, 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 I could see how I learned different ways of doing business. In Australia, um, uh, for a lot of bigger purchases of technology, uh, everyone's quite concerned in making sure that they're making the right choice. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes on up front to make sure that the, the choice is the correct one. In Europe, there's a lot more focus on standardization and, and following business process and business rules. Um, and they tend to like software that is much more standards centric. Uh, the U.S. on the whole uh, always has felt to me of being able to make more aggressive decisions hmm. earlier on. Um, you know, to, it's almost the it's the 
you know, fail fast mentality um, sure. uh, to, to look for advantages, but obviously to press it home once, uh, once something has been successful. I, I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by this. You know, I used to, I used to spend a lot of time with banks and you'd go around and you'd speak to the same banks and even outposts of the same banks in different countries and have very different kind of ways of doing business. Uh, even though they're all part of that kind of that macro organism group. corporation. I think honestly that companies that embrace that, that difference uh, are the ones that are most successful. So you've had, you've had a lot of exposure over your career working with these big multinationals and the big kind of fortune five to the, the enterprise level companies, and then also selling into those companies. What do you think we can learn from, from working and selling into those big organizations? What are the, what are the cheat sheets of getting in those doors and selling to them? Are they different? This is what I would say. If you did something that worked five years ago, it won't work today. If you, if you had something that worked two years ago, it's not going to work today. These companies are moving so rapidly and evolving so rapidly mm. that relying on your knowledge from two, three, five years ago is, is really tough. Wow. Like they are, I think all, all companies are going through a period of reinvention. Um, you know, whether it be a, uh, you know, kind of a bank that wants to become a software company, you know, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the, the taxi company that's decided to deliver meals. I mean, everyone is, is looking for those transformational elements and it is changing uh, the culture of these larger corporations incredibly rapidly. While at the same time, the ones that are successful in those transformations still have a, uh, have a core, uh, almost a core mission, yeah. um, something that they believe in, that while their businesses may change, the tactics may change, the technology may change, there is something about who they are that has become increasingly important uh, uh, to them. And it's, it used to be the brand, right? But now it's not the external brand as much as it is their internal brand about how they want to be perceived by vendors, by customers, uh, and by their own employees. Um, so someone much smarter than me uh, was, had read something to me and it went something like, look, you know, people who join, uh, you know, join a, a company because of the mission. They want to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Ones who stay, stay because of the values. Mm. And I think that large corporations have kind of worked that out, that people may come because it's an exciting project. And if you can yeah. get them to stay because of the core values that you represent, that's, that's pretty important, especially with the, uh, the paucity of talent that, has, that you have available now. Sherry Hamilton, the COO for Grant Cardone Enterprises. So give us the, um, give us kind of the helicopter tour of the Cardone Enterprises that you're running today, then the 107-ish employees. Um, you know, what, what functional areas of the business report to you and are there any areas that still report into Grant? So every single area of the company reports into me. And we're really starting to see that these divisions branch out into what's, what's coming into be is their own companies almost. Sure. And so that is the challenge. But we have Grant as the public speaker, the keynote speaker that travels the world. We have Grant as the unbelievable multifamily investor. And that venture is going so incredibly well right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's growing it so much that um, it, it's something that we are definitely going to have its own, it could be its complete own 
entity with, with another operations manager, I'm sure very soon. Um, but right now we have 10 employees over there. We've got another 13 employees in the ad agency that we started. We have our e-commerce group. We've got the online university group. And, you know, Grant as a, a, an, an author and writing books, that's a whole, a whole nother division. Let alone Grant as the, the host of the Cardone Zone, the g and &E Show, the Young Hustler Show, the Real Estate Show, and our whole division that is Grant Cardone TV. And then on top of that, with the whole live event, totally, it's really just, honestly, the live event thing has taken on a life of its own. He's a classic underachiever. He, he really That's is. And, and I will tell you, it does take a very special person and group to support him. Well, and that was my, the question I was going to ask you was, um, and I want to know about some of the support stuff that you have to do to play to, to with him. But the first part of the question is, what's it like to be kind of in the shadows of the brand? You know, I, when, and this is very, I think very common of every second in command. One of our jobs is to make the CEO iconic and, yeah. it, and it is to often walk in the shadows. What's it like for you to walk in the shadows when you're, when you know you're doing so much of it um, and then, and, and often you kind of walk uh, as an unknown. Well, I feel like you don't, if you are in a position where you desire the spotlight and you must have that acknowledgement, it's probably the wrong role for you. Mm -hmm. You should probably be out there doing something else that would get that for you. Yeah. For me, I really never needed that. And, and the satisfaction that I get comes from every single day when I have an employee that's doing better because of something that we've talked about or, or the statistics rise or something else is happening. We pull off a huge event that it, it's our first time doing an event and we've pulled off 9,000 people at the Mandalay Bay Event Center. And those kind of things bring me the gratification that I need. If I were, if I were the type of person that needed that, that attention or acknowledgement, I'm afraid it wouldn't last very long because it's just not that kind of role. How do you handle all of the, um, the, he's a quick start. I mean, Grant is definitely a, you know, idea plan later, right? Or execute. Plan right. Later. Um, how do you play clean up to that? How do you say no when you feel you need to say no? And how do you, I guess, give him the permission to start all the things he wants to, and then you get to kind of figure out the how later. Uh, it's a great question, and I feel like it's probably just because I know what he's trying to do, and I'm a thousand percent on board with what he's trying to accomplish. I love the mission of what he wants to do, and that's why it's really my privilege to support him and making sure that, that that gets executed. He calls himself the hurricane, okay, and so it, it's no mystery to him, and he comes in and he just causes all sorts of problems and messes and and so what we do is we just try to put processes in place actually beforehand. Every time we have something happen that we go, wow, this is really a mess. And so we, I meet with the team and say, okay, guys, what can we put in place that allows for this in the future, that it's not such a logistical nightmare in the background? And we really learn as we go how to prepare to allow him to be as free as he wants to be. That's perfect. And that's really, you know, I think where the skill comes in because you have to think outside the box for sure. 
the usual ways don't work. And, and it's true every single day we're trying to figure out how do we do something different, better, faster, without all of the red tape that we would normally see in something. Now, when it comes down to, hey, we really cannot do that, or we really, that would harm our brand, or that's something that is going to be detrimental to the customer. It's not a good customer experience. And I just talk to him and say, you know what, G? What we're finding is we're finding this and we're hearing that. And he'll say, well, who's telling you that? And so when I go to him with those, I always have some examples. And I said, well, watch this. When you go here and you do this, or when you hear this and you go there, you reach a dead end or whatever the example might be. And he'll say, oh, no, no, I don't want that. So it's really very simple because he's such a great person. And his, again, the purposes are so aligned. I'm not trying to do something other than what he's doing. Sure. So it, it's really, as long as I communicate to him challenges that we're, we're having and executing his plan, his dream, you know, his mission, he'll be like, no, no, we don't want, we can't have any stops or any blocks on that. And it works out fine. James Orsini, the COO of VaynerMedia for Gary Vee. So tell me, James, when, when you came in then as COO, um, what were the, you know, they typically talk about the first 90 days, first 100 days of somebody coming in as a senior executive. What was your first 90 days like coming into the organization? What did you focus on? And, um, you know, what would you have changed if you were to be able to go back now? Would you have done anything differently in the first 90? Uh, I think it was really interesting because Gary said, when you come in, James, I want you to breathe. I want you to just observe uh, the culture. I want you to understand how it is that we operate here at Maynard. Um, before really uh, making uh, decisions or, or um, advising on uh, protocols and things like that. So just get a feel for, for how we operate. Uh, and literally the terminology was breathe. So um, I think that was, uh, that was really great for me um, in, uh, in understanding the culture that he bit. You know, what's unique is he's not an ad guy. So, um, and he never really set out to build an advertising firm. It just kind of happened, you know? So, um, yeah. so that's, that's both a blessing and a curse because the blessing is um, he doesn't come encumbered with 150 year uh, industry uh, baggage. <laughs> um, uh, but then that also comes with the um, uh, loose structure of, you know, here is the way things are done when you're dealing with a fortune 100 client base. So, um, uh, you know, I think it was, okay, how do we take what is so special about what it is that he's created and, um, and help it live in an ecosystem that, uh, you know, uh, uh, permeates structure and, and, um, uh, and guardrails, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the racehorse that we want to make run on the plains, uh, you know, of, uh, of Texas rather than be totally fenced in in somebody's yard. So are, are you focused on the system side of the business right now? The people, is it strategy? Where do you tend to, um, to focus? Um, I actually go wherever uh, Gary needs me to go. So um, because I've, I've, I've played so many uh, uh, chief roles in my past, uh, you know, CFO, COO, CEO, CIO, I've been a chief administrative officer. Um, I've seen a lot of different things. 
uh, and I know how um, uh, departments interact. So um, uh, do I help advise on systems? I do. Uh, do I help advise on uh, structure and process? I am, and I can. Uh, do I help him find the right uh, uh, key individuals and hires that build out his leadership team? I have. Um, uh, can I help him with infrastructure, um, office operations? Uh, you know, um, um, uh, I was actively involved early on in, in the uh, opening of the office in Chattanooga, uh, in the uh, original uh, uh, state in London. Um, I helped with his first big acquisition of PureWow, which has now created the digital publishing division under the gallery. Um, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've roles in uh, his uh, uh, facilities build-out structures, um, uh, whether it was here at Hudson Yards or uh, our 40,000-plus square foot studio in Long Island City. So um, I go where he needs me to go. It's interesting. Tell, tell me a little bit about the acquisition. What did you guys learn doing your first acquisition? Well, I think it was kind of interesting um, because uh, I've been part of companies that have had uh, uh, big and explosive growth, but that was mainly through acquisition. I've been part of a company that has grown organically like Gary's. Uh, so, uh, but there, there was a time when he really wanted to um, get into the publishing side of things, and it was going to be uh, hard and long to grow it from uh, from scratch. Uh, he had a relationship with uh, Ryan Harwood, who was the CEO of the gallery, and um, you know we uh, we helped him structure a deal that was a you know combination of uh, of uh, equity and, and debt um, through our partners at RSC. Uh, and, um, you know, went through the process, due diligence, acquisition, uh, and then the integration. How do you, how do you identify the wrong people, either the cultural cancers or the, you know, the people that are underperforming and, and remove them from the organization? Uh, if they're not selfless, when they become selfish, we quickly realize that they may not be the right fit for us. When, when they step outside, when they're doing things that are best for them and not, but what's best for the logo, we step outside. Um, so, uh, you know, we have a few key indicators that tell us, and obviously if they're not uh, your basic performance of tasks, we give everybody a chance to succeed. So it's not like you're one mistake and you're out the door. Uh, we, okay. we, we over-index, I'm really trying to help you find. But I think another thing that's great is that we will find you a role outside of these hallways. If we mutually decide that it's time to part ways, uh, we've placed numerous employees at, at other companies, um, uh, which have now come back to be our clients because we did the right thing on the way out. Yeah, it's great. I read about that, I, that whole idea in a book called The Dream Manager years mm -hmm. ago and, and how they try to move people off. Um, what are, are there a couple of core areas that you might be as an organization trying to grow your mid-level team in terms of their, their management or leadership skills? You know, we, we go back and forth on the mid-level, um, you know, just really trying to determine um, are, are they the most valuable uh, commodity in the, in the building or are they the least valuable commodity in the building? So, um, you know, Gary uh, over-indexes heavily on, on junior talent, the hustle of junior talent. Um, and uh, that's important for us. And now the, the question is, do you, do you really uh, move to a fewer, better model on the senior side and then get this young, hungry, 
hustling kind of talent beneath them. We're exploring that. This is over the past couple of two years, we've been taking the time to bring in some professional development, whether it's uh, you know, uh, 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 presentation skills training, uh, storytelling um, initiatives, uh, you know, to, to help develop that level um, beyond that. But, you know, what you have to realize here is one year at Vayner is like seven years in the industry. It's dog year here. Sure. So, uh, you know, we're careful with how much we spend in a structured professional development because the way we service our client changes every six months. Right. It completely changes. Um, what was I going with the... Um on the people side so it was, give me an area then that you guys have have really struggled with as an organization and what you've done to turn that around or an area maybe that you spotted that you had to um really champion or, or lead well we're we're still uh questioning our uh, our project management role not uh not the capability we know it's needed in the building what we're questioning is where does it belong um does does project management at banner uh, belong uh, in a separate department as it had existed for, for long? Uh, does it belong rolling up into the production division as it currently resides? Does it really belong as part of account management and account services as we are debating? So, yeah, you know, we as, as our business model changes, remember where this company came from, right? It was um, micro content, a lot of pieces thrown out into the internet, you know, small bits of, of uh, creative with uh, community management or people seeing how others were engaging with it uh, and then doubling down when they see where somebody engages. Now it's fewer, better pieces of creative content with media dollars behind it. Uh, it's a different way of operating. So therefore, divisions that were, were right and built in a certain way need to change. Uh, because the way we're servicing our clients changes. Dana Arnold, the COO of Measurable. So tell us about your, your background then. What, what kind of um, things did you see in Measurable that, that attracted you to come in as their chief operating officer? And what do you think they saw in you to bring you on board? Because it's a critical role. Yeah, absolutely. So when around the time when I was exploring joining Measurable, Measurable is about 20 people. Uh, still very founder-led everything. So the CEO, Matt Ellis, who founded the company back in 2013, um, this was around about 2017 when I joined the company, he was still doing everything from running payroll to strategically leading founder-led sales to managing customer success to leading the product team. You name it, he was he was the only business operator within the organization. We were primarily software developers, um, a few customer success, two sales guys, one marketing person. So it was very crucial state of the business. Um, he had just closed kind of a second seed round um, to really fund the next growth stage of the business. So when I started chatting with Matt, um, it was very, very clear that he needed a lot of administrative help in growing and scaling the business. Um, what really attracted to, to, honestly, measurable to me in the beginning is I, I was working for a quasi-competitor, um, Gobi, out of, out of Chicago, um, and kind of saw his approach to solving 
similar challenges in the commercial real estate market around utilizing technology to enable scale and growth in this space. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to, to explore some new career options, um, really I thought, wow, I really want to work for that guy, Matt. I think he's solving these things in new and innovative ways um, that typically sustainability was led by consultants or tech-enabled consultants that use a lot of people to solve challenges that technology really can solve. So that really attracted me to Measurable and, and to Matt personally. Um, I reached out to him and said, hey, I like what you're doing. Can we somehow work together? Whatever you need, I'll do it. Wow. <laughs> um, and so it kind of started some really interesting conversations in those early moments um, of really understanding you know, the, the approach of utilizing technology to solve global challenges around climate change in a way buildings consume over 40% of energy. We spend over 90% of our time indoors and commercial real estate's the fifth largest asset class. So the opportunity for huge impactful change around how we handle and prevent climate change is, is really in this core set uh, um, of challenges. And it requires a global solution to really help solve these challenges and these problems. Um, consultants in Excel are not going to solve these problems in and of themselves. Utilizing a technology so consultants can actually solve the impactful change that they need to and removing the data management and the data architecture and some of those insights, um, centralizing that into a centralized software platform. And of course, uh, you can SaaS that. <laughs> when you have a software platform, you can really turn it into a subscription model that scales and grows with customers over time. And you guys are a SaaS model then or a subscription-based business? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah. So t about with you and Matt then. So Matt's CEO, you're COO. How did you divide and conquer in terms of your roles and responsibilities and how has that evolved over your two plus years with the company? Yeah, definitely has evolved. Day one, I think it was it was one of those mission critical moments where Matt was like, I need to focus on strategic stuff and I need to get a lot of these administrative things off my plate. So that was really day one of our, okay, what are the, the, the tactical things that need to get done so he can focus on a lot of the strategic things within the business. So it was, um, you know, one of those moments too where I had not been in a chief operating officer role. Um, I had experience in running a 20-person and data team that had a fairly large budget. I was responsible for all the hiring and managing of the budget and spending of the cash to deliver on the services. And, you know, in talking with Matt, I was like, you know what, whatever you need in the business, I, I'm here, I will do it. Whatever it takes to work with you, I'm here. So when talking with him, we didn't really ever discuss necessarily the role or the title or anything of that. Um, and I remember getting the job offer from him and reading being like, chief operating officer? What? 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 <laughs> and having that moment of like, okay, well, what, what does this mean? And I actually literally remember going and Googling, what does a chief operating officer do? That's awesome. And <laughs> it was that moment of really learning that this role is so dynamic and different depending on the industry, depending on the business's needs, depending on the people involved. And I'm, you know, coming into measurable from a very much of a subject matter background expertise of 
you know, working in the commercial real estate space, working with sustainability in the built environment, you know, from graduating college with uh, the degree in architecture where I thought I was me designing and building buildings. Mm -hmm. Now I'm building software to help make buildings better. It was those, those moments of trying to figure out, okay, well, how, how can I be very successful coming into this role and supporting a young growth organization um, in those early days? Um, and really the main tactics in those early days were taking over a lot of the administrative functions of the business that needed yeah. to get done. You need to run payroll. <laughs> you know, some of those not, not sexy things, but they're, they're things that need to get done. Um, and really how that role has transformed over time, you know, really was looking at what the next stage of the company was that we needed to uh, fund for that next stage. So that first a good six months into the role was working on our Series A funding round um, so that we could really move move and accelerate the business forward. Um, so that was a fun project of really learning that whole world of venture capital and, and raising money. And that was a new, fun experience for me. And now I've gone through the whole process twice now. Mm -hmm. And the Series A was um, really designed to raise cash to build in a leadership team. At that right. point in time in the business, it was Matt, it was myself, and Lance, who's our CTO. Um, he handled all of the software, the development work, managing the development team, which was our largest team at that time. But we didn't have a head of sales, no head of marketing, no head of customer success. Um, so those were some of the crucial roles that we needed to bring in, as well as some additional administrative uh, members of the the team to really help accelerate growth, including our now CFO Nicole uh, and our uh, head of HR Jessica. Those were some of the key things that really transformed my role into being uh, kind of getting back into the strategic side of operations of the business. So you've been you've been in since the very early days. You've clearly had to then work on your skills as well as the company's evolved. You've had to evolve as a leader. So what what have you been working on to grow your skill set? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's something that I've actually been thinking quite a bit, quite a bit about lately, um, of the balance between tactical things that need to get done in the business, and what are those strategic things that I can do to support the growth of the business, and and now that we I've got a team of of people that are supporting the administrative functions of of the business, looking at how from a business operation standpoint are we strategically enabling growth within the organization? I think it's very easy in this role to get bogged down by the tactical things that come up on a day-to-day -day basis, but being very, coaching myself to be very diligent around, is this a strategic priority in the business? Will this enable growth with our people, with our product, with our customers, with our investors? And if it doesn't fit into that model, Maybe it's something we shouldn't be doing, um, even though it might be something people might expect that someone in HR or someone in business operations would be doing these things. Um, really guiding ourselves from a strategic perspective and aligning with business growth opportunities. Andrew Way, COO of Zurich. Tell us about Zurich so that we understand what Zurich is, and then I want to go backwards in time to kind of where you got your experience at becoming a COO. Sure. Um, Xerix is, you know, everyone thinks that they're 
that their company is weird and unique, right? Um, and, and most people aren't wrong, but they're not generally weird and unique in the ways that they think they are. Most businesses are, you know, there's a, you probably know this better than anyone, the amount of businesses that you have deep insight into. Like there's an 80% overlay in a lot of these things despite the industry, right? Yeah. Um, I actually genuinely think that, that Xerix is, is a pretty unique business. And so um, I say that because there's not a lot of other businesses that, that, that um, have constructed their, their sales funnels and to some degree their marketing funnels like we have. Um, and, and we're a little, um, to use that word that I was referring to, uh, you know, Utah liquor laws uh, as a minute ago, we're a little arcane in that we do a lot of stuff in person. Um, and so Xerix itself really has uh, little to no brand value, if you will, and, that, and that's by design. Um, our brands are education brands that we put that we put uh, put out on the front foot, and those are all um, headed by celebrity partners. So part of what makes us is unique is that all of our product lines are and individual brands are headed by a, a celebrity partner. And and now you know the, the degree uh, to which these folks are celebrities is subjective, and, and everyone has their own opinion about you know. Sure. Whether we're talking D-list or A-list here, right? Um, but to us, they're all A-list. And so um, so that's unique. And then um, the way that we that we sell is that we we market fairly traditionally these days. We're, you know, we're, we're digital um, for the most part. We also still send direct mail. We're still making that work. We still use radio. Uh, we're still making that work. And, and, and honest to God, we still use billboards. <laughs> and that works. Um, and as you might imagine, that means we have a pretty, um, pretty heavy attribution engine and, re and, and business intelligence group here. So we know those things work. But um, uh, and so we put people all over the all over the we put on live events all over the country. And they're the things that you've seen. You know, you come to your come to this free event to learn more about real estate investing or to learn more about entrepreneurship or to learn how to take your business to the next level or. And so for our primary brands are business. And on the business side, we're, we're represented, we, we work with uh, two guys from Shark Tank, one named Robert Hershevec, uh, that's a more recent launch for us. And then one named Damon John, which we've been working with Damon and his team for a few years now. Um, and then we also work with a, a guy that some people may have heard of. Um, this is their most recent brand launch named Grant Cardone. Um, and on the real estate side, we work with, I would say, you know, slightly less famous people. Um, from the TMZ standpoint, maybe we work from from uh, with people who are on HGTV primarily. Tark and Christina from the original Flipper Flop show, and mm -hmm. Hillary Farr from Love It or List It. Like my that's 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 the only thing as a quick aside that my mother understands about what I do. She knows that I work with Hillary Farr, and she tells all her friends. It's like her it's her it's her it's her social equity at this point. Um, right. <laughs> so. So we work with those folks, and and we and people come out to see their teams. Certainly not them live in person all the time. And and the, and the and the tip of our sales funnel, the the, the bottom of the top of it, I should say, the the fat part is our free live events where people come out to learn about wealth building and and um, and we refer to this internally as disruptive education. We we really feel like we are out there meeting people's needs right where they are. Um, and in, in the most efficient manner possible. And so people can then choose to participate with us and buy more products up the product line after the free, the free, the free event, right? So, um, and those, that education can take many forms. There's one-on-one -on -one coaching, there's, there's group mentoring, there's, um, there's uh, lots of boot camps and fast starts and um, more and more education. And, you know, people are, 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 I should say, our sort of highest value customers have spent six figures with us. And are you running all of those sections of the sales funnel or just the front end getting them to the event? I um, personally, in terms of revenue operations, um, am running 
most of it. Um, we've got, I mean, our structure here, we'll probably get into what a COO looks like at Xerox here in a, in a moment, right? And our structure here is um, pretty cooperative. There, there's four of us. There's three founding partners and then there, there's me. And, um, and, um, and so we tend to team up on things, honestly. So there are some things that I have primary accountability for. And, and honestly, that's how I uh, prefer it. I find the teaming up sometimes a little inefficient, yep. um, but um, but to date it's been part of the culture and, and it seemed to work okay. So so I have, for instance, let's take marketing. I have 100% accountability for marketing, um, where I'm in much more of a support role with our high-end telesales groups on the back end, right? So I'm sort of involved in all these things, um, and I have um, you know 100% accountability for our brand management group, and that's a fairly hefty group here because that's the group that. Um, that interacts with our celebrities, right? We have some people who are rightly concerned about their reputations and we've spent enormous amounts of money and, and other resources on, on making sure that, that, uh, that we enhance their reputations only. Um, and uh, let's see, you know, then in terms of client services and uh, PR and corporate communications and stuff, that's all mine as well. It's really the sales where we kind of tend to team up. But you do all the sales for these companies as well, like not just getting them to the events. You actually do the sales for all. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. You were asking about our business, not my personal role. I apologize. So, um, so yeah, we do we do everything soup to nuts. So we do everything from marketing. We do all the fulfillment on the education. There are a couple places where we have a fulfillment partner that's a third party contractor where they'll come and do very specific pieces of education um, that is that would be inefficient for us to to hold in house. But I'd say 85% of the of the educational fulfillment is done is done inside the building. Wow, very cool. Yeah. All right, so let's back up a little bit. So back yeah. up and kind of walk us through where did um, where did you get your skill sets that <laughs> you well now as a as a COO? Yeah. Um, and then we'll talk about how you got involved with Zurex as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of where my skill sets have come from, I think I've had. Um, like a lot of us, I've had the, the benefit of dumb luck and great timing. And what the dumb luck and great timing, um, how, they, how those two things manifested themselves over the years have been in, in sort of fundamental primary experiences that I didn't seek out, that just happened. Um, and then also relationships with people um, that I did seek out. Because um, I'm, if I can recognize one thing, it's... it's uh, it's someone who's a lot smarter than I am, and, and, I, and I, love, I love to I love to be mentored, um, frankly. Um, and so, and it, it's been nice after 20 years. I've been able to turn that around a little bit and, and give some back too. Um, but but the first instance of dumb luck was um, responding to an ad in April of 1998 for customer service rep openings at Amazon.com. Um, wow! <laughs> right, and so. Uh, at that point in Amazon's, indulge me a quick story, it's worth it, I promise. Um, at, at, at that point in Amazon's evolution, there's a couple things that were that, that people don't remember. One was all we sold was books. That was it. Uh, everything was in Seattle. Our distribution center was right down by the kingdom. So, you know, there is no kingdom anymore. All that stuff's gone. And, and I, being a communications and cultural anthropology major, had just returned from traveling in Southeast Asia um, with... Um, I, I believe at that point I was operating at a deficit. I didn't even, I didn't have any money. I'd spent it all in Asia. Uh, mostly I'm trying to talk to, talk to him buy drinks for Australian women. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I needed a job and my parents told me I had two weeks. I had two weeks. Um, I was welcome to live at the house and eat and do laundry and do all the normal things I would do, uh, you know, for, for two weeks. And then I had to be on my own. So I've been intrigued by Amazon because 
I had used Amazon, we're a book family, and I'd, I'd used Amazon from an internet cafe in, in Thailand to send my mother and sister, I think birthday gifts or maybe Mother's Day gifts while I was gone. And I was fascinated that I could do that from an internet cafe across the world and that they would wrap the present and put a note on it for me and send it directly to my, my, my awesome. family. Florence Bout, the head of operations for Leverage. Tell us about the vision that you have for Leverage. Where are you taking the company now over the next three years? And how do you get aligned with Nick's vision? Most entrepreneurs have this vision swirling around in their head of where they want to take the company. How do you get on the same page with him? And then how do you get him on the same page with your operational plan plan to make it happen? Lots of communication. Um, so where we want to take leverage, so we've just, um, we bootstrapped our way to, to this point or to October and we've lo- just launched our new dashboard. So, um, well, with just, it feels like just because we're still, you know, massively improving it. Um, but yes, that came out on, in October. And so we're still transitioning all the clients off it and onto the new uh, system, as in off the old system and onto the new system. So actually, we've got a time frame of wanting to really do that in the next month so we don't have to maintain two systems. So the first vision would be to do that. And then we have, so it's almost right now becoming um, a SaaS product because with the services, because we really want to have a great platform which uh, facilitates the service. So we, we have a version two coming out that's going to uh, later in the year that will support um, the services much better. So that would be kind of the next year vision. And so everything comes back uh, to that as in to the development and who gets, uh, yeah, what will kind of support both of those. Okay. So you meant, that's fine. You mentioned um, communication, a lot of communication. So talk to me about the communication protocol, I guess, or how you and Nick um, work with each other. Is there regular meetings? Do you work over Slack or Asana? Do you do a lot of face-to-face or over Zoom? And and are you um, in the same office as him or are you remote as well? Completely remote. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very funny seeing them for the first time. I think I only saw them for the first time after a year of working together. So wow. it's like you have all this additional information suddenly um, when you meet in person. Uh, but, you know, we spent so much time on conference calls before that. But, you know, that was just kind of the first second. Um, so, yes, on Slack, very heavy in Slack. Um, then we do use Asana for project management, so as well. And so that's more kind of setting up kind of the goals and, and then the tasks, the week-to-week tasks between the calls. And we have uh, definitely a weekly call to check in on all the weekly tasks and just be like, okay, what were the targets for this week on next side or my side? Um, where did we get to with that? If not, why? If not completed, why? Um, and then ad hoc project calls. So I'd say like half my day-to-day would be kind of um, the maintenance, what I call more the maintenance of making sure that everyone has the right information, the right um, knowledge system processes to do their job effectively and efficiently. And, and then the other half would be projects. So there'll be more uh, structured project calls of, for example, this transition from the old platform to the new platform. So that yeah. would be then a project that we treat separately. But yes, all day long in Slack. So Nick is very, um, your CEO is very focused on systems and processes and automation. um, And I think the software side of the business, correct? Yes. How do you, how do you support that drive, but also rein him back in a little bit to avoid the perfection trap so that you can kind of launch now with that whole minimum viable product idea? 
Oh, I, actually, I'd say that it's uh, that it's more the other way around. That I'm yeah. <laughs> that I'm like, oh, I don't know, is it ready? And he'd be like, let's get it eighty percent. Let's work okay. on this eight twenty rule. So, for example, which is what I learned from him because. He was like, right, the dashboard, let's launch it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. What about this? What about that? You know? And he's like, no, no, I think it's good enough. It's MVP. It's 80%. And we've got the developers and we're going to work on it and we'll get the feedback. Awesome. That's that's huge growth for him then. Because two years ago when I spoke with him, he wasn't quite there yet. He was still driving for everything to be perfect. And I think that was something we talked about two years ago. That's great. Yeah, in that regard. So I think in the high level vision, there are other times, of course, that he does become perfectionist. And so then it's about saying, okay, Nick, I've got this. It's fine. When Leverage is working with customers, just tell us a little bit more about Leverage so we understand how the model works and what kind of work you might do for clients. So yes, we're on, as the blurb said, we're on demand. So they come to us, um, let's say, podcast. We're on a podcast. So they say, Hey, I want to start a podcast. And we're like, great. We can definitely help you with that. We've got our marketing team within the marketing team is the media team. So uh, for example, Ike, he's our head of um, media. They would come to and marketing. Um, they would come to him. And so he'd start saying, okay, like we're, let's look at all the systems and the tools. Uh, where do you want to host it? Where, how are you recording it? Um, you know, do you want a summary? Do you want show notes? What are the images? And we'd organize that whole aspect. So we'd make sure that we got the design or the template images made, that we had the whole process for what you wanted written up, whether you wanted uh, a transcript or not. And um, then we would figure out where we wanted with you, of course, where we wanted to publish that podcast to, whether it's, yeah, if it's going to iTunes, whether it's going to SoundCloud, things like that, whether it's then using this transcript and the summary to go to Medium and write a blog based on it, whether it's going to the website, and of course, the social media aspect around that. And so um, we do, yeah, from start to finish, depending on the client needs, of course. So that's an example of podcast, but we could talk um, any other sort of process, more on the business operation side, marketing strategy, things like that. Yeah. What's your typical client? Who do you look for as a client? How would you describe them to us? So they're um, usually entrepreneurs and small businesses, and they're probably looking to scale. Um, so they probably have you know, a small team behind them. So we would complement their in-house team. Um, so we do work with startups that are, are solopreneurs as well, because those are the people that really need us, um, since they're a one-man show, or a one-woman show, sorry. <laughs> um, but typically, our client avatar would be you know, the, the small businesses that are really starting to look to scale. Okay. And give, give us an example then of an operational um, project that you've worked on with companies. Okay, um, just uh, personally racking my brain <laughs> since I worked internally so uh, so much recently. So um, one of them, actually, the two last projects I did, one was with a legal team and one was a boutique hedge fund. And sure. so with the legal team, it was uh, using a tool called Process Street, and it's kind of documenting all their processes. And this is, again going to the client avatar and setting them up for success and setting them up for growth, we wanted to make sure that they could hire more people and they would all be following kind of the same cheat sheet, the same process. Um, or if someone went on vacation, that that transition could happen seamlessly. Um, so it was as 
so that was more in terms of business operations, kind of documenting the processes, spending a lot of time talking through what happens this uh, at this stage, what happens at that stage, who's responsible, when is it due by, what is the deliverable, and documenting that, uh, right. that whole process. So that was for the legal team. For the boutique hedge fund, it was a lot more because I'm not a trader. <laughs> it was a lot more behind the scenes. Um, so they're kind of back office. So what happens, because I think they have a 20 to 30 person team. So what happens in the hiring process? What happens when they want to go to conferences? So the last request, actually, I've got a, a call schedule with them tomorrow, is as simple as um, organizing team travel. Um, because they were, there was just so many kind of conferences and um, people requesting time, uh, time to go travel and, and the budget management of that. So we, we wanted to kind of streamline that, have like a funnel, um, see funnel and kind of develop that funnel a lot with automation so that all the right people were being informed and all the information was going to the right place for something as simple as a travel request. <laughs> Interesting. So you actually spend a lot of time working with the client, understanding their business or their processes. Then, and I guess what you were saying with the, uh, the legal team and helping to organize it in process street. So you're, you're doing what maybe some of their operations people can't do or don't have the unique ability for. And then does that start setting them up for scale? Is that right? Exactly. Or maybe that they don't have the in-house operations person um, available or they're not knowledgeable. So part of this would be training. Because I think exactly if we are going to set them up for scale, they need to be able to do the day-to-day -day management once we've kind of done the bulk of it. So it would be usually training up their in-house person so they could do the small tweaks later on. And so I used a personal example, but I, I don't want to limit that to me. So we have a whole team that does that uh, as well. Of course, totally. Yeah. So, so when you're working with a client, um, how do you get the vision of what they want on a project? Because you're working with them remotely, aren't you? You're not actually on site with many of your clients. Uh, exactly. So all remote, um, which is wonderful. And we can talk about that a bit more um, if you want to. Um, it's, it's a lot of calls. Like um, I always start and I think, that's the same for the business operations and the marketing strategy people is let's get on a call and listening, really listening to their needs and catering to their needs because it all has to support what they want. So I can't impress too much my opinion on things. I, can, I definitely have my opinion and I can make suggestions, but at the end of the day, the process has to work for them. They have to buy into it and they have to be, because they have to use it at the end of the day. So if they don't have that buy-in, then um, they won't use it. And so that, that would be a shame. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.